welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 48 of the Free Cities podcast. Well, I'm back from Prague, and well, what can I say? It was everything I expected and much, much more. Can I sum it up succinctly? Well, I'll try. I am so damned excited, so enthusiastic about what's going on in the Free Cities world, not least because I just spent the best part of a week recording 16 podcasts, speaking directly to the people who literally bind this movement together. But more than that, and I challenge you to try this, dip your toes into this community and try to miss the overwhelming sense of optimism amongst this group of individuals. These are not the people who are up on their soapboxes complaining about a world they don't like. These are the people creating new worlds and I am here for that 1000%. I love it and I'll be honest with you, I feel extremely grateful to be playing my small part in the whole thing. So if you missed out this year, if you couldn't make it to Prague, don't fret too much. It will all be happening again next year and it will almost certainly be bigger and better. So today I feel I have to drop an episode that I recorded at the conference. I had a number of conversations that have been on my bucket list for some time. And one of those was speaking to someone about seasteading. Fortunately for me, I got to have two such opportunities. One was with Joe Quirk, the president of the Seasteading Institute. And the other, which I had first, was with today's guest, Mason Lashina who is the brains behind Atlas Island, a project planning to create sovereign cities at sea. Now, I feel I should probably preempt this episode with a small plea from myself to please forgive me for thinking out loud a fair bit in this episode. Those of you that follow the pod will know that my preferred style of investigation is very much to find out about things in real life from real people. Something I believe allows you, the listener, to join me as I work this stuff out in real time. So if you're a hardened seasteader, then there may not be much new for you here. But if, like me, you had very specific beliefs about the viability of free cities in the ocean, then I invite you to come along and join me as I get my mind well and truly educated. Mason is a great ambassador for both seasteading and the Free Cities movement as a whole and I can guarantee you that this is the first conversation of many as this project evolves in the coming months and years. No more advertisements for the conference for a while at the end of these intros. You can just sit back happily in the knowledge that It will all be happening again in approximately one year's time. And in the meantime, of course, I would advise you to just relax and enjoy my conversation with Mason Lashina. 
It's my first time doing an in-person podcast. I've done them online, but... Uh, really? Yeah. Well, welcome to an in-person podcast. I mean, I don't know whether you you worked that one out listening to the show. We do everything in person. Everything. I, I, I kind of figured that, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and then I'm quite, um, you know, I'm quite sort of resolute about that because it's a completely different experience. And I had, I, I started a, a, a podcast of my own a number of years ago, uh, just before the pandemic, actually. Um, and the, I, as soon as I did try doing one over the internet, I just completely lost interest in it. Fair completely. <laughs> so, um, but this one obviously is going strong. We're, you're you're going to, well, we're almost up to 50 episodes. Wow. And there's so many more still in the bag ready to go. <clears throat> but funnily enough, um, you're the first person connected with seasteading that I've actually spoken to. And I've been desperate to speak about it because I've got an opinion on it. And all I ever end up doing when I'm talking to people is just giving my opinion on it. I don't really know enough about it. Um, so this is, so I'm really looking forward to this. However, you are, I suppose, your, your, um, part in the seasteading movement is quite specific, isn't it? Is Atlas Island. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I guess it's kind of my, uh, my project, uh, so to speak. Like I said, I am to some degree involved with the seasteading Institute. I talk to uh, Joe and Carly on a regular basis, but, uh, that's more, you know, in relation to Atlas Island. So yes, that's, that's my project. Like, like I say, I know almost nothing about, the most I know I've found out about seasteading um, has all come from just looking around the internet and I haven't really done it extensively because I much prefer getting my information from directly people. from real life, yeah. So, you know, prior to finding out about Atlas, Atlas Island, my seasteading knowledge was, you know, I, I, my, in my mind I was imagining floating um, pods, you know, not too far offshore. The sea pods. Yeah, this kind of stuff. Whereas what you're proposing is essentially a movable island. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you could call it a movable island. I would think of it more as, you know, a, a floating marina in the ocean, a floating city with multiple marinas in the ocean. Um, it wouldn't be so much one in solid island that's a single piece, but rather a jigsaw puzzle of a bunch of floating pieces that come together and um, make full use of that mobility that you have on, on the ocean. So how do you, you're a physician, right? Yes. What kind of, what kind of, what does that mean in America? I mean, any speciality? Yeah. So I, I practice emergency medicine. That's my, uh, that's what pays the bills. Um, right. So how does an emergency physician decide to, you know, dream up and, and develop a, a movable floating <laughs> marina then i mean yeah. are you a, are you a former or are you a former um i mean do you own a boat for example what's the connection here sure so i mean it's it's a little bit of a long story um i guess the short answer i'll give you first is that you know being a physician and atlas island are unrelated um the long answer is you know i've uh, i've always been interested in science and technology as well as politics it's kind of been the two interests of mine you know, when I was young, I was very involved in political movements. Uh, I guess probably like most of your guests, I followed the the classic arc of going from, you know, being a conservative, libertarian, and then I guess I've taken it a couple steps further and gone to anarcho-capitalist. And, you know, seasteading, I think, is a technology that brings that into reality. And I guess in terms of my personal background, after high school, I uh, studied engineering um, for my undergraduate degree and uh, learned a lot about technology and problem solving there. Um, 
and realized, you know, my specialty was biomedical engineering, that uh, you really can't make a, a job of biomedical engineering without doing a PhD. And that wasn't something that I was, you know, interested in doing uh, th those big uh, research projects. And, you know, um, I ended up following the path of medicine for my career, but I've always kept my separate interest in politics. And, you know, when I became disillusioned with politics, I started looking for alternative options to achieve that freedom and uh, that liberty that a lot of us have been seeking. And, you know, that led me to the libertarian movement. Um, I started reading things like uh, Murray Rothbard. I came across the Seasteading Institute first initially um, and found it quite interesting, uh, the fact that you could use technology to achieve liberty rather than the political process and debate. And then I uh, later came across the Free Cities uh, Institute, and I really tied those two concepts together uh, into the concept of Atlas Island. So that's the short story, of, uh, the long and short story of how I got to this point. And is Atlas Island your baby completely? I mean, how much are other people involved in this? And in, for example, and obviously we'll get into this, but the engineering of it as well, because I can, I could, I could imagine envisaging this in my mind, but the engineering of it is something completely different. And you need absolute specialists, I would imagine. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when Atlas Island started, there was actually a group of us that had started with this concept of, you know, a modular city and um, building in phases rather than trying to go from zero to 100 in one step. And fairly early on, um, there was three of us and we had a little bit of a disagreement about the the end state, I suppose you could say. Um I was much more in favor of a free cities model where everything is operated in a private manner by companies uh, that are serving customers. And uh, my two other colleagues were much more interested in the micronational approach. And they really liked the idea of having a government and, you know, giving themselves titles and uh, having votes and democracy. Um, so we kind of separated off into different projects. And Atlas Island is, is my section of that project, uh, which I guess... I don't view it as my project per se. I view it myself as the custodian of the project because ultimately what Atlas Island is is it's trying to develop a movement of people who share a similar vision and can work together to build this this ultimate um, you know this ultimate goal of a, a free floating city, uh, making the use of both the technologies of seasteading and the concepts of free cities. So you know, do I think that I personally am going to hire an engineer and build all these platforms? No. But what I think of myself as doing is bringing together this community, um, articulate the vision, and uh, ensure the legal framework for it is sound. And then from there, you know, it takes a, a group of individuals um, and multiple groups of individuals to make this happen. So I, I guess to tell you a little bit more about the project, which can then explain how I would see it coming about, is we're, we're envisioning this happening in essentially five stages, which I think you... Um, you probably have seen before but I'll, I'll go over it quickly well uh, before you do let me um read you this which it, it, i think it explains it very well and then it leads into that this is this i, I just ripped this off your website but <laughs> it, it helped me understand what was going on um, Atlas Island is an international community of people who believe in freedom and individual sovereignty. We recognize that freedom should not be the su a subject to the whims of government or even the majority, but rather an, uh, is an unalienable um, natural right of every individual. On Atlas Island, every individual is sovereign. Therefore, all interactions must adhere to the non-aggression principle and voluntary agreement. To achieve this freedom, we will leave behind archaic governments, which assert control over their citizens, establish a new floating city in the ocean. Then the next bit, which leads into what you're about to say, the Seasteading Institute has conducted extensive research 
and has demonstrated that this is possible, even within the existing legal framework. True freedom can be achieved without a vote and without violence. At Atlas Island, we've decided that it's time to make that happen. We've developed a clear and feasible five-stage process to move from our current paradigm <clears throat> of voice and instead provide individuals with the choice to vote with their feet and move to a new voluntary society. So you've got these five stages. By the way, um, that vote with your feet thing, you're missing a trick there, mate. You could say vote with your boat. <laughs> that would be a good, a good slogan. <laughs> you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that from you, I think. <laughs> I, I thought it up the other day. Like I was t talking to someone else about seasteading who wasn't an expert, and it was like, vote with your flippers or something. And, and then I was lying in bed the other night, and I thought, hold a minute, vote with your boat. You can't, you can't beat that. No. <laughs> okay, no. so the five stages of how you imagine this happening. I think this, this should pretty much sum up the whole situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So the first stage is where we're at right now. We're developing an online community of like-minded individuals, you know, uh, clarifying the framework, um, making sure that everyone is on the same page in terms of the laws, the process, the idea, the vision. And we're really trying to build out that community. Stage two. Can I stop you there? Absolutely. Let's 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 find out. But since we're in stage one, how's that going? Like, how many people are interested in this thing, and who are these people? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say right now we have about between our Telegram group and our mailing list about five hundred people who have expressed interest in being members of the community. Um, there's a large amount from America and Europe. Those are the the biggest locations. We also have some people from South Africa and a few people from Asia as well. Uh, but What's their, what kind of people are these? Are these seafaring people or are these liberty-minded people or are these both? You know, what kind of person wants to live on a floating city? If I had to be honest, I'd say that most people are land-based people who like the idea of seasteading. We do have some people who, you know, have boating experience, but I guess, frankly speaking, if you have boating experience and you're committed to seasteading you're probably already yourself in phase two of our plan. You already have a boat that you're living on in a marina somewhere and you've achieved that mobility. So a lot of the people in our community right now are people who like the concept um, and just haven't known where to start. They've, you know, they've read about it, but maybe they've lived their whole life in, you know, continental Europe or America and haven't really had much experience with boats. So a lot of stage one will be bringing those people to that, um, to that level where they're comfortable getting on a boat and, you know, living on it and picking a boat. And I hope, you know, as well, when we start getting to stage two, that we can start connecting with some of these communities that probably have never heard of the term seasteading, but these liveaboard boat communities that really do embrace that concept of individual responsibility and liberty and really merge those two communities together. And are these people, the ones you're talking about here, just people that live on boats and just sort of like once a year probably go around the world or just live in a marina or something like that? Because that's a fascinating community even on exactly. its own, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's very fascinating. Uh, like I said, I mean, my understanding is a lot of these people, they don't necessarily use the political terminology because they don't come from that side of it. They come from, they just like the freedom that boats provide, even if they don't express it in political terms. So they are very much of a similar mindset, a lot of these people, but uh, haven't expressed it and probably aren't looking online for this community. You have to find them by going into the marinas and, and meeting them in person. I guess similar to yourself, they're, they're probably not too focused on being online, a lot of these people. Well, I mean, one thing I've noticed, and it's not exactly um, a very scientific approach to the subject, but I don't know whether it's just my Instagram stories feed, 
but I get a lot of people putting reels up, which are my life on a boat or we're heading from Mexico now to here or whatever. It seems to be always young, sort of pretty ripped guys and beautiful women in bikinis and stuff. But nevertheless, that is a something that's very much in the the public. It's a meme. It's a, it's a 21st century meme, isn't it? Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, I should imagine a lot of people did it as well. But it wasn't the kind of thing that people thought, found aspirational, put it that way. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's aspirational and now it's accessible for people who, you know, could never do it themselves. They can still watch that and live vicariously through those people. So it's become much more prevalent, I would say. Yeah. So what? come on then, stage two. We, stage one is people signing up online, not necessarily having any background at all, but just curious, uh, Atlas curious people, let's say. What about stage two? So stage two is um, where you actually get a vessel of some kind. You know, from my perspective, I think a catamaran is probably the ideal vessel to make that happen. But it could be anything. I mean, it could be a sailboat. It could be another monohull. It could be a pontoon boat. It could be uh, a sea pod. Any kind of floating thing that you can live on and that has some degree of mobility. Stage two is where our community is you know, going to move on to those vessels. And ideally, we'll choose a couple of locations around the world. Perhaps one in you know, the United States, maybe Florida. Another one in the Mediterranean. And you would find your closest marina, move on to the vessel, move there and start building a community with other members of Atlas Island and hopefully bringing other live-aboard boaters into our community. The idea of this being that a lot of seasteading is to some degree a chicken and an egg situation because if I could snap my fingers right now and build a massive floating city in the middle of the ocean, we'd still have a problem because people usually don't move to brand new cities. They want someone there. They want something there before they go other than just the pure physical infrastructure. So the idea of phase two is twofold one to get people comfortable living on boats and two to start building a community in person where they can meet each other they can get to know each other and also you can start building an economy within that community so you know maybe in this marina there's 20 atlas island members and you know one of them's a plumber um, one of them's uh, you know a hairdresser and you start using those services within the community perhaps even in a um, you know a an agoristic uh, manner where you use uh, cryptocurrencies or, you know, gold coins and you start developing that uh, community and embracing that freedom uh, of associating with like-minded individuals. So really the, the point of stage two is to build that community and get people comfortable living with those, those other like-minded people on boats on the water. Uh, uh, which is very much a 21st century um, phenomenon, this meeting online manifesting in real life and i think it's a hugely important part of the whole free cities movement not just people that live at sea i think um it's probably one of the reasons why the movement is gaining so much traction at the moment because the option to meet people is there like never before yeah and and i agree but that i would look at that part stage of your plan i think that's probably the hardest stage as well absolutely i mean you have to convince people to either sell what they have or buy a second, you know, accommodation and, and move there and take that chance. <clears throat> and I mean, I think you see other free cities like Prospera and that's, that's the stage they're at now. And that's probably going to be the, the longest stage. I mean, it's going to be uh, a gradual adoption, but then at some point it will reach an asymptote and it'll, it'll start accelerating because once you see online that there is actually a community of say a hundred people in this marina and they're all like-minded, then that's a much lower barrier to jump and move there rather than being the first or the second person to move to that marina. How long has stage one been alive so far then? Um, about 
two years now, I would say. And how, how much of stage two do you think is even happening or not at all? I mean, within our group, I know there's at least uh, two or three people who are already living on boats in different marinas around the world. Um, another couple who are interested in, in getting them in the, in the near future. And then myself, I'm working to design one that should make it much more accessible for everyone within our community. Design what? A marina? A boat. Oh, a boat. Yeah. Right. A, a, what, a, specific, a boat that's kind of tailored for seasteading or what? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess... Anyway, I, can I just ask you again? You don't have, a, you don't have any boats or anything. You, you, you have no history of, a, of being a sailor or a boatsman. So as of a year ago, I did not. No. Um, I mean, I, after high school, went on a vacation with my family. We rented a houseboat and I was the uh, person who chose to do the course and captain it. Um, but since starting Atlas Island, I've taken it seriously. And actually, over the last year, I've done um, two boat trips totaling uh, to about six weeks in total where I've lived aboard a boat for six weeks and learned to operate it, um, got my uh, my um, my skipper's license, and uh, I'm, I'm continuing to do additional courses in that regard. So I'm, I'm learning the skills to live on a boat. Um, I mean, I think at this point, I'm comfortable taking a catamaran and chartering it in coastal waters. I mean, I'm not at the point yet where I do an ocean crossing, but I guess, frankly speaking, an ocean crossing is not necessary for Atlas Island. As long as you can cruise along the coast and go from marina to marina, I mean, you can either take the Caribbean and North America, or you can take the Mediterranean and Europe. And then if you need to go across the ocean, you can always hire a skipper to do that for you. I mean, you're not going to be going back and forth across the ocean every day. So, I mean, I guess from my experience, realistically, if you put in three to four weeks of time on a boat in a course, you can get to the point where you have the skills from a boating perspective necessary to, to live aboard and, and to move around. What, though, is the connection between Atlas Island in its final form and catamarans? It's just a way to get there and back. The Atlas Island itself, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be a, have livable structures in it. It's not, it's not about... Your boat will just be moored there. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Um, so... I think Atlas Island will look differently for different people depending on um, to some degree what your your, your affluence level is. Uh, I think my goal for at least the middle class and you know the upper middle class is that each person you know who can afford currently a middle class house in North America or Europe should be able to afford their own vessel. And what it would look like in the long-term vision is Atlas Island would be a large floating structure that would have a number of slips for vessels. And then on the structure itself, it would have uh, a marketplace, you know, it would have a bunch of opportunities for businesses to be built. So one vision it could be is, a, you know, a giant floating marina with a central part that includes a, essentially a downtown core. And then most people would actually be living on their, their vessel docked at that, uh, at that platform. And they would pay a docking fee to dock there. The platform could, you know, supply electricity, water, and then you could get off your boat onto the platform, go, you know, um, go shopping, uh, you know, have businesses there um, and uh, have community events there, restaurants, things like that. But ultimately, the, the goal and the vision is to maintain that independence. So it's not just to get on the water and then build a big floating city where it's floating in the water, but you are still in a, a big building. The idea is that you have your family living on a catamaran, for example, and there's five or six platforms flowing around and you choose which one to dock at. And, you know, if they start providing worse service or increasing the prices or, you know, increasing regulations, you can then choose uh, to simply 
move to a different platform. All you do is you unhook your boat and you motor over to the other platform. And uh, now you choose that as your community. So that vision there is what ensures that even in the long run, you keep that competition uh, between governance providers for residents that ensures you get the best possible services at the lowest possible price. And it also acts as a hedge against um, the public choice uh, public choice problem because ultimately each platform will have some governance solution in place. I mean, my hope is that they'll be run as private companies but even that could degrade, right? I mean, for example, Prospera, you know, I'm, I'm big on Prospera. I like it. But the problem is it's a physical location. So if the governance provider decides to change your taxes and you have invested a whole bunch of money in some real estate there, uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, to fight that. Whereas if all they own is their their actual platform and they change their taxes and then you're in a catamaran, you can just motor away and, and go somewhere else and then they've lost your business. So it really provides that strong ongoing incentive and should prevent that uh, that gradual deterioration from freedom to uh, socialism that we see in most developed countries nowadays. I can't help um, making the connection between this and outer space. Yeah. <laughs> As you're speaking, I'm, I'm I keep getting visions of Star Wars and people arriving and docking and and all the businesses are there. Yeah, but you're just you know obviously in, in space. There's probably going to be accommodation as well. But your your idea is that the the city, in inverted commas, is actually the business district, yes. really, isn't it? And, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I've had that same vision myself. And, um, you know, there's been this argument made both by the Seasteading Institute and other people that if you look at space, really the closest thing we have to living in space is living on the ocean. So if we want to start moving to space and other planets, the best thing to do is start becoming independent on the ocean and living there. And I guess bringing it back to the catamaran... Um, it includes my, uh, you know, my my vision of Atlas Island, but also my personal desire for independence. So, you know, this catamaran that I'm designing, I want it to be solar powered. You know, not relying on anyone else for electricity. You should be able to make your own water with reverse osmosis, process your own waste, and uh, you know, connect it through Starlink. So, basically, what you're looking at with this catamaran is a house that is mobile anywhere in the world, that is essentially independent for everything except for food. And if you put a six month supply of food on the boat or a year supply of food. You can go anywhere, do anything you want, and not rely on anyone else whatsoever. So I think, frankly speaking, that's probably the closest you're going to get to living in space without actually getting out into the, you know, into out of the, out of the atmosphere. Um, and I think it is a great stepping stone. I mean, you know, build up this community for 50, 100 years, and then eventually that same concept, you take the catamaran and you know, you make a, a spaceship of you know similar dimensions, and now you've got uh, to some degree the the building block for a, you know a, a space colonization. Hmm. It's um, I've got so many questions about the legality of it and everything, but let's stick to the plan and let's do the stages. So, okay, we've reached stage two. We've got a number of marinas around the planet with people raring to go. And one other point about stage two that I hadn't mentioned yet is the nice thing about stage two is rather than going off and building fresh, we'll find either an existing marina or a city where we can build a marina. And that way, even if you're only 20 people in this community, you still at this point have access to all the amenities of the city, right? You're not going off and, and roughing it with a, a small group of people. It's like you want to go to the city and get your Starbucks or you know go to your Walmart or your Lidl or, or whatever it is, it's still available to you. So it provides that comfort and also that ability to work. You know, For myself, I'm a physician. I, I couldn't very well be employed in a community of 10 people. So I would need somewhere to work until we get a large enough community. And I think a lot of professionals are the same way. So it really provides, I guess, an incubator for that community as it grows up and, and, and builds and develops. Are you planning, though, that in the future you would be able to make a living on 
something like Atlas Island. Is that the plan? Absolutely. My hope is that, you know, by the time we reach stage five, there should be enough people that it should be essentially a self-sufficient community. I mean, we're not going to be isolationist. We'll, we'll have trade, but all the core services you'd find in any small to medium-sized city should be, be available on this on this platform. Wow, fair enough. Okay, stage three. They, I mean, stage two is basically trying it out in a marina, isn't it? This exactly. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, stage three. Yeah, so if you think about stage two, stage two is getting us onto the water. And then stage three is bringing the infrastructure onto the water. So rather than just being docked at a, a marina, actually starting to build a floating marina, but doing that in a very sheltered environment. So finding, you know, a big harbor that's got breakwaters that is very calm um, and that still is relatively close to a city. And then starting to build those floating platforms that I'd mentioned before. So you've already got all your floating vessels from stage one, and now you build a floating marina for stage two. Where can you build a floating marina, though, without... You can't just go and build a floating marina, can you? Well, Isn't it, wouldn't it be, oh, go on, are there islands all over the world that have great little spots for creating marinas? Yeah, yeah exactly. There yeah, okay. There's islands all over the world. <laughs> right. um, I would, I'm just thinking they've probably all got, already got a marina or something, if they're near a city at least. Sure. Right. So, so when I'm talking about stage three, I'm not talking about building a marina. I'm talking about a floating marina. So finding an area of sheltered water that's maybe 100 feet deep and say, you know, uh, a couple hundred feet from shore, where it's just it's just in a, you know a protected area of water, but there's nothing there. So then you can build this floating uh, you know this floating infrastructure, and the great thing about it is, number one, we could choose anywhere in the world. You know, um, negotiate with some of these smaller company countries and um, and pro- hopefully private cities, and you know get that jurisdiction to do it. And number two, if you know uh, five or ten years into stage two, uh, sorry, into stage three, an issue comes up, and you know the the city or the the country starts getting upset with what we're doing. Then you have the ability to move all that floating infrastructure somewhere else and start, you know, uh, shopping countries against each other to get the most favorable deal for your community. So, what pro? What, at what stage of the process of designing a floating, a new harbor are you at right now? Is it is it pretty obvious technology? Is it because that? I mean, harbors a lot of them are floating anyway, partly, aren't they? So. Um, it's something that I've discussed with other people. It's not something that I have taken on myself yet. I mean, I think we still have a lot to do in stage one and stage two. Stage three is conceptually very doable, but you know, it's not something that we've started the engineering work on. That being said, I have been in discussions with some other seasteading businesses, and uh, you know, they have similar visions. Um, so it could be you know something as simple as floating platforms. It could be a large floating dome that encloses an entire area and makes it, you know, protected from the elements. So we really haven't gotten to the technological side of it, but um, it's something that's doable. And really, it's just a question of, of putting the money in and having the market for it. But my instant thought is, what, what about a storm? Even, I mean, even in a, a sheltered place, you still get pretty high waves in a bad storm, but let alone being... 12 miles out or whatever you have to be it's 12 more than 12 miles out yeah depending on the 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 location yeah um i mean storms are certainly a concern there's a couple ways to approach that the first one is this is part of the reason we're doing it in stages is to move from a marina to a harbor where there's smaller waves then off to the coastal region and then off into the middle of the ocean so you would be testing at each phase and you know figuring out what works and what doesn't and you know getting that knowledge that you can only get from experience the second point is that when you actually look at the ocean and the marinas and the harbors, there's storms, but there are areas in the world where there's worse storms and where there's less severe storms. You know, as much as some people may like Northern Europe, I don't think the North Sea is the right place for us. But if you look at the equatorial regions, 
there's actually vast swaths of ocean that are uninhabited, unclaimed, and then have very minimal waves. You're talking, you know, one to two meter waves maximum most of the time that are, are quite um, doable with modern technology. And then the alternative option is, um, you know, looking at the platform itself and thinking rather than a platform that is per se the center and has all the boats surrounding it, what you could do is um, there's a technology called uh, monolithic domes. Basically, you take uh, you, you build a giant uh, cement dome and you could do this a thousand feet in diameter. The technology exists to do this. And then what you would do is you'd have a floating dome um, that has entrances and inside the dome, you'd have the marina enclosed from the elements. And because it's such a massive structure... Sorry, is the t- the dome itself c- concrete? There's not a glass dome on You could the do glass parts of it. You could do concrete. Um, you, however you want to do it. You could do glass steel. The, the technology for a dome is available to do any of those options. So I think, you know, the most viable option would be a combination of concrete and then with a, a glass ceiling. But essentially at the water level and below the water, you'd have a, a large amount of concrete that would protect it from the waves. Up top, you could have glass that protects it from the, the wind. And then imagine a door um, and you open up the door and you can uh, motor your boat right in and inside you see a bunch of docks. Then along along the edge, there's all the all the buildings that are the, the market itself for the platform. It's half a Death Star, isn't it, basically? <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> I yeah. can't stop thinking about space. I literally can't. The do- you're talking about d- doors opening and stuff. It's literally exactly how ships dock with the Death Star or whatever. <laughs> I mean, look, I hadn't thought of the Death Star. Uh, I mean, there are... I mean, but, that's uh, obviously a bit of a negative spin. But No, but, yeah. uh, you know, if you're saying that this is, you know, bringing visions of Star Wars and, you know, sci-fi, that's fantastic. Well, that's my experience of things like this, obviously. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. M- most of the most interesting things that happen were shown first in sci-fi. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not what necessarily inspired it, but the fact that it lines up with it, I mean, I think is quite interesting and uh, thought-provoking. Hmm. Well, and also... You know, I can't help thinking about Luke sort of, you know, going to one of those bars in the middle of a strange (laughs) planet with thousands of different types of people there, which is, you know, you would expect you would get a pretty diverse bunch of people on on a floating city because no one, everyone's no fixed abode. It's literally written into the experience that you have to be no fixed abode. You could come from anywhere. It really doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's... You know, <clears throat> taking, a st- <clears throat> taking a step back, there is uh, two things about Atlas Island that are interesting. One, there's me and you, you know, the, the person who comes from a, a developed Western country that wants to escape and achieve that freedom, which is great. And, you know, that's where I'm coming from personally. But two, the other side to think about this is that if you can actually establish this in international waters, it provides a huge opportunity for people who come from more oppressive countries to, to make a future for themselves because ultimately the biggest factor in someone's success is usually the country that they're born in. I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but if you had to take a gamble, you could bet based on the country you come from, what your odds of being successful and, you know, achieving a middle-class comfortable lifestyle are. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, hardworking, intelligent people all around the world that are limited by their governments. So I think the ability to build this city in international waters would allow us to open it up to all those people who may not have the ability to get visas to Western countries. And then we can allow those people to, you know, make the most of their abilities, make a life for themselves, but also benefit from their knowledge and their talents that are currently being hindered by the restrictions their government and their passport places on them. Mm. Interestingly, it's just triggered a memory in me Um, because it's very relevant. I I, I can't even remember what it was. More than 10 years ago, I, I was part of a documentary 
team. We made a documentary about the Bajau sea gypsies in Sabah. Do you know this group of people? They no. they are well, they live on boats all around. Okay. I mean, it's an area. If you, it's kind of south of the between the Philippines and okay, um, at south of the Philippines, right to Sabah and the Sulawesi, which is part of Indonesia and places okay. like this. And they have no passports. They have no um, nationality. The, the Bajau, they're called. And um, we 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 made we were filming them because they are incredible breath divers. And the kids, there's even some, some fascinating research that's been done that shows the kids have better eyesight underwater, like <laughs> as on a, a, a factor of many uh, ten times or whatever. I don't know wow. compared to a normal person. But the, the one particular guy, I can't remember his name now. It was called Sorbin. Sorbin would um, breath dive um, for like five minutes and walk along the seabed and it was bizarre you should look it up it was a bbc film wow but the point was that they lived on boats we and i know that because we went out and spent time on the boats with them and um they just moved around from place to place storms were a thing for them but they they were in atolls so a lot of the time they were in quite shallow water it wasn't even and they were also pretty much to a large degree hunter-gatherers that collecting fish and and you know shells and starfish all kinds of stuff and eating eating that it was i haven't thought about that for ages um one funny thing though and you this is something i'm you probably already know this but anyone on a atlas island will have to deal with this is you get land sickness don't you when you spend too much time at sea the badger when they used to come back onto the land they used to feel sick because they're they're constantly just moving up and down and put down with the waves, and you get the opposite of seasickness, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess if you're on you know a normal boat, yes, um, but I guess to some degree that's why I like the idea of a catamaran because a catamaran is very stable; um, it has very little rocking motion, and then if you combine that with a large, you know, thousand foot diameter enclosed harbor you'll have almost no movement but i mean certainly you have to adapt to the environment catamarans still move though right a catamaran just has those arms going like stabilizers that go out to keep it from from really rocking backwards and forwards right so a catamaran is is a vessel with uh, two separate hulls and then the living platform is between them so it has very minimal um, movement in small waves uh, you can go even a step further even and you can actually do something called a, a small water plane area twin hull which what you can imagine it is essentially you have two submarines underwater and then there's a couple sticks coming up from it and then there's a platform above the water. And with that design of a catamaran, you have almost no movement in small waves. Um, you could have, you know, a glass of wine in a storm and, and it wouldn't it wouldn't tip, it wouldn't spill, it wouldn't rock. Huh. So there's a lot more stability. And um, catamarans, they do move, but it's it's absolutely nothing compared to uh, a monohull boat, which is constantly rocking back and forth. A, plat- a catamaran is, is very comfortable. Uh, so just in my experience, you know, I, I spent um, about three weeks or four weeks on um, a monohull and then the rest of the time on the catamaran. And with the monohull, you see it, it's a completely different way of living. Uh, you have to be grabbing onto things constantly when you're walking about. All the cupboards are locked. Everything in the cupboard um, has a, play, a way to secure it. But when you're on a catamaran, even when you're going in the, in, in the ocean, it looks like a normal house. The, there's there's glasses, there's plates, nothing's moving around. It's a very stable platform. Obviously, if you go in big enough waves, there's an issue. But in everyday life, the catamaran is quite a stable platform. And you wouldn't necessarily think that you're on a boat, certainly not a boat of that size. Have you ever encountered really bad weather yourself in real life? Uh, 
not not on a small boat no i mean i've uh, i've been mainly coastal so uh if the weather was ever exceptionally bad we just chose not to go out which again is i think something that we would do on atlas island i mean when you're in the coastal community you wouldn't you wouldn't venture out into a storm for the sake of it um, because it's not just the fun of sailing this is your your house this is all your life belongings that are on this vessel so you would probably be more conservative in, in what you tackle and you don't have to move that second so you don't going back to the floating um um, harbour if it's the dome one I take it you can make a very heavy structure float yeah very heavy yes like and just by having pockets of air I presume in certain parts of it is that right yeah exactly so I mean if you're doing a cement dome one of the options is you can put blocks of um, uh, different types of cement that have air embedded in them and you can actually make a, a cement that is lighter than water or you can put foam um, encased in cement and, and that will float too. So, But presumably that makes it less strong, surely. Yeah, but we're not talking about a, a mobile thing here. This, If you're talking about a thousand foot diameter harbor, it's not moving anywhere quick. So it really doesn't matter the strength of the material because you can compensate for that strength of the material by making the walls thicker. So if the walls are 10 feet thick, what does it matter? It's, uh, you know, as long as it's strong enough to support its own weight, it stabilizes, it blocks the waves and it floats that's really what matters is there anything like that already in existence in industry or i mean obviously you get oil rigs but mm-hmm. they don't float right oil rigs are floating yeah oh are they yeah i thought they i thought they had you had something on the ground no they're just floating are they floating yeah, exactly yes yeah. so oil rigs are actually a perfect example i mean they're designed for a different purpose, but you have a, a massive floating structure that actually does go in places like the North Sea. And usually they're um, they're either one of two designs. One is a spar, which is, imagine a, a giant um, a post that's full of air, and at the bottom you put a, a whole bunch of weight, and that weight pulls it down into the water. Um, and now that weight at the bottom acts as um, a pendulum, so to speak. So if it starts tipping, that pendulum pulls it back upright. So that's one option for a, a stable floating structure. The other option is um, uh, the the semi-submersible. So again, it's kind of this idea that you have a floating platform deep below the waves, and then you have a large um, structure, uh, essentially posts that hold the the top side, they call it above. So your flotation is well below. The common common theme in both of these is that your flotation is well below the water surface and that your living surface is well above the water surface and they're separated by a very small thin structure and what that means is the action of the waves is very minimal because it's hitting small posts but there's a huge amount of flotation below and a huge amount of structure above and it lets the waves essentially pass right through it so that's the approach that oil platforms take and these platforms are massive in huge waves like 50 foot waves in the north sea and they have to be able to keep their position to within you know a meter or less so, all so that the, the the drill and the the well doesn't break underneath that's what them. I thought. all oil rigs are not are not attached to the seabed. Is that right? Not all are. I think there are some that are, but most of them are floating because of the depth. I mean, you're talking a thousand feet of water a lot of the time. It'd be very hard to build a structure a thousand feet tall and, and anchor it into the bottom and support its weight. But but when you but the drill from an oil rig is a solid drill that comes from the rig to yes. the base. Yes. So it literally can't move. I mean, that's yeah. devastating if it yeah. moves even slightly. Yeah. So really, they don't even... I mean, they're not that big oil rigs, are they? They're, they're pretty big, but even oil... So presumably, though, if there's a big storm, they pull the drill up or something. Is that right? 
Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think so because like once a well is established, I think the pipe has to remain in place. The pipe um, might be flexible though, right? Yeah, it might be a little bit flexible. And I mean, oil rigs, what they do do, I'm sure, is they anchor. So they throw out anchors in all directions that kind of provide some tension and keep them in place. But yeah, no, they're, they're there 24-7, 365, to, regardless of the storm, and they have to maintain their position and, and not break that well. Yeah, and you get terrible storms in the North Sea of, around yeah. the UK. I mean, it's the... W- worst sea there is around where we live yeah and 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 what we're talking about is you know a big structure a thousand feet um in minimal waves you know one two maybe five meters uh that if it moves a meter two three it's not a big deal as long as it doesn't capsize or sink right that's so the 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 standard that we're trying to design to is much lower than the standard you need to design to for an oil rig so it's certainly doable with technology it's just you have to have the market and the incentive to make it happen presumably you could use some of the technology that oil rigs already use and just go straight to people that are producing it right yeah i mean you you could use an oil rig i mean there's been some thought of doing that um it wouldn't necessarily align perfectly with atlas island because you know we're looking at the idea of everyone having their own vessel and if most of your platform is you know 50 or 100 feet above the water and there's not much stability at the water it doesn't work very well as a station to dock boats but uh, that's certainly an option for other seasteads if they want to do that. Or, I mean, if you want to do something like Atlas Island, but instead of being on boats, everyone has, you know, a, a container that can be moved on and off the platform. That could be a possibility as well. There have been various attempts at creating sovereign nations on those kind of, on, on um, oil rig type platforms. Yeah, you're talking about Sealand. Sealand, yeah. Do you know the, much about the story of Sealand? Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a novelty. I mean, it's interesting. I believe you're from the UK, so it's uh, something uh, close to you. Um, basically, the the UK um, had this uh, this military fort um, that at the time was technically in international waters. They said they no longer had use of it, so they abandoned it, and it was a huge structure. So they didn't want to pull it out of the water; they just left it there. And I forget the, I forget the gentleman's name, but some some person moved into this fort, declared it an independent country, and himself the the prince of it, the principality of Sealand. And, uh, you know, I don't know the exact, I know I read them, but I, I don't want to butcher it. But basically what happened then <clears throat> was uh, the UK said, well, it's outside our territory. We're not going to do anything about it. And it was left for some time. Um, at some point, there was an incident where, I forget the exact circumstances, but uh, I believe it was the UK sent some of their um, their personnel there to try and take it back. And this guy essentially resisted with small arms, like a, a rifle or something and some rocks. And they said, well, it's not worth it. We'll, we'll leave them. <laughs> British. So, That's a British show. So, I mean, obviously the UK could have taken it back if they want, but they did attempt and then they didn't think it was worth the cost and they left it. And now they've expanded their territorial water. So technically this is now in the territorial waters, but is it's the guy kind of, still there? Uh, his family still owns it owns it they still go there they they sell postage stamps they sell titles and they go visit there regularly i don't know that they're living there every day of the year anymore but uh, they do still uh, they do still operate it should get it up and running could call it new zealand <laughs> <laughs> um okay stage four then so we finished stage three which was um the, the creation of the harbor yeah. close to to land yeah yeah and then stage four we'll be taking that same floating structure and moving it out of that sheltered harbor maybe five miles offshore um into an area where it is exposed to the waves but you still have that ability to go back and forth to the shore relatively easily if you want and this is kind of the the last checkpoint so to speak before you move to international waters where you realize okay what is it that i'm going to shore for what do we need and you know you give it 
a couple of years to test it out and make sure that you're really confident about bringing this this floating structure 100 miles into the ocean. So it's just really a final checkpoint after you've built the technology in stage three and before you move it off into the middle of nowhere in stage five. And at the stage where, how do, who do you imagine are going to be the first movers business-wise? Because like, it's a really important component of this idea is that you need service, goods and services on on these platforms, don't you? <clears throat> yeah. So that's an interesting question. I mean, for the first four stages, frankly speaking, you're still following the laws of the country in whose territorial waters you reside. So I don't think you're going to get any of the innovative businesses that are looking to make use of that uh, that freedom that you'll get on the ocean. So I think it'll be a combination of things, but it'll primarily depend on the people who move to the marina in the first place. I mean, if you have someone who is used to running grocery stores, and then maybe you'll have someone running a grocery store as one of the first businesses. Um, and I mean, as things are developing, I suspect it'll be a lot of people who are liberty-minded and want to run businesses uh, using cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, uh, essentially embracing agorism. And, you know, in stage three and uh, stage four, it could be that not only do these businesses service people in Atlas Island, but also people from the city around who don't necessarily want to live on the water, but, you know, want to transact in cryptocurrency um, or, you know, support agorism they could be patronizing these businesses as well you better define agorism in case anyone doesn't know what you mean by that so um i guess agorism is just uh, the concept of interacting freely um, regardless of what the laws are uh, so to some degree, everyone practices it without knowing it. I mean, if you have someone come paint your house and uh, they say the price is, you know, $1,000, but uh, it's $600 if you give me cash, that's agorism. You know, they save the tax, you save money. Um, obviously, the government gets cut out, but that's uh, essentially achieving freedom on the black market um, to some degree, uh, but for things that are generally accepted. So it's... Uh, yeah, I guess that's my understanding. I don't, I don't know, Tim, if you want to explain more from your well, perspective. No, I don't. I, I've, it's, something, it's a philosophical slant, let's say, and I think you know, you've probably said enough there. Um, I was already thinking of another question anyway, and that was back to what we were talking about, the first movers business-wise and who, who might make use of these platforms as, as a business because almost certainly you're going to get the fringe elements of society who are left out of the sort of you know the mainstream world let's say who will always gravitate towards these places which is probably which is a potentially a problem as well because <clears throat> the easiest way to give something like this bad press is it's a hotbed of debauchery and you know like lawlessness and etc etc presumably you thought all these things through right yeah absolutely and you know I think that's where we'll actually have an easier time than people who are trying to build a micronation because we don't have to rely on democracy. We don't have to rely on laws. What we're relying on is some person or some company or some group is putting together $10 million or $20 million to build a big floating platform. Do they really want to risk their investment, their reputation and all of that money by letting you know someone offer prostitution or whatever other service it is there? No, they're going to be focused on their business case and they're going to choose services that are going to be profitable and relatively low key because they don't want to risk all of their investment so that some person can run some fringe business there, right? They're going to be just focused on the core things that really no one questions. So it's, 
I, I don't think you're going to see that. I mean, maybe someone will try to build a platform, you know, some rickety little platform to run their fringe business, but that's separate from all the other platforms. And, you know, I think we can very clearly say we don't associate with them. That's their choice. That's what they want to do. And if they go down for it, that's on them. That's not on the rest of the people. Okay, so <clears throat> I think we're already up to stage five now, which is full-blown seasteads at sea. Let's talk about that because where are they? Like, how far are they at sea? Um, and I know, I mean, I think I forget who I was talking to recently about something along the lines of this that happened off the coast of um, Thailand, mm -hmm. which was outside the 12-mile exclusion zone, but they still went in there and shut it down. Right. So, so, and I think during our discussion, the, the, the conclusion was the best way to approach this is to first get, to have negotiation with your, in inverted commas, host government. Mm -hmm. Because as long as they know what you're doing, you're more likely to get left alone, even though you, have, legally, you should be left alone. There's nothing, no one owns that bit of the sea, right? So, <clears throat> technically speaking, and you know, talking about the, the first um, seastead built by Chad and Nadia off of Thailand, Technically speaking, they were not legally able to do what they did. Although there is international water and no country claims it as sovereign territory or sovereign, you know, within their borders, there are international laws of the sea that all countries agreed to. And this is where they went wrong because they built a floating platform and they plopped it in the water and said, we're outside your 12 miles, leave us alone. But... According to international law, if you have a floating vessel of any kind, a boat, a pod, whatever, unless it is flagged in a country, it is fair game for any other country to interrogate, examine, and potentially, you know, um, uh, impound or destroy. So the way you get around that and the way that we're planning to do this is every vessel should be flagged in some country. And what that does is that essentially gives you your get-out-of-jail-free card because if I have my catamaran and I flag it in the Bahamas... And then, you know, the United States comes up and says, well, who are you? What are you doing? I say, well, I'm a vessel registered in the Bahamas. I'm following their laws. As long as I'm following the laws of the Bahamas, then other countries won't hassle me. And it's up to the Bahamas to enforce their laws with on, on top of on my vessel or in my vessel. But what would the host nation get out of that agreement? What, what, why would they do that? Why would they benefit if you're because you're basically a liability? At that so point. money. They right. get paid for it. You pay oh, a certain okay. fee right, to get right. the flag. And this is not an abstract or philosophical discussion. If you look at the cruise ship industry, this is exactly mm. what they do. I was thinking, I've just written down, you, cruise ships. Yeah, did, exactly, I, exactly. So yeah. look at Royal Caribbean, right? Most of their ships are flagged in the Bahamas. Do they travel to the Bahamas often? No. So they're flagged in the Bahamas. They're built in Europe. They sail from ports in America with customers from around the world to many different countries. And what law do they obey in reality? In, 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 you know, in theory, they obey the laws of the Bahamas. In reality, they obey their laws that they make for themselves. And as long as they're not egregious, the Bahamas tolerates that. And in exchange, the Bahamas gets paid a large amount of money for their flag because they're massive vessels. Now, smaller vessels, it's more reasonable. You know, you're talking $500 to $1,000 a year to, to rent a flag. And essentially what the country views it as is we provide sovereignty to someone who would have never given us anything before. And as long as they're reasonable... They give us money and it costs us nothing. So it's, you know, it's an existing thing that happens with cruise ships. Um, with our platform, essentially they could be viewed as a cruise ship that doesn't dock and uh, that has a large permanent population. So the, the standard, the, you know, the, the precedent is already there. That actually, I mean, cruise ships may be an important part of your evolution because they do dock places. Mm -hmm. And I could quite 
easily see docking at Atlas Island as being one of the highlights of one of those trips. <laughs> Dock at the world's first floating village or blah, yeah. blah, 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 you know. And and there you get docking fees and, you know, because you've got to run a profitable business there, haven't you? It, it doesn't yeah. work. But there's a, because there must be a huge amount of maintenance or something like a, a, a sort of floating city, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of why we haven't looked at the cruise ship for ourselves route because boats like cruise ships take a huge amount of maintenance. Smaller vessels still require maintenance, but if you build fiberglass catamarans, there's a lot less maintenance. When you're talking about the actual platform, this will be something that will be purposely designed to be long-lasting with minimal maintenance. So obviously there would still be maintenance, but the idea is that it would be much much more affordable to operate than a ship. Um, you know, if you have concrete that is, uh, you know, appropriate for seawater, it can last for centuries without much maintenance. If you um, are not moving, there's really no engines to, to maintain either. So you cut out a lot of the, the problems associated with boats. I mean, you're talking about a concrete structure that doesn't move versus a steel uh, a steel structure that's constantly rusting, moving, and uh, and, and breaking down by that, that movement and uh, all of the mechanical parts on it. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, there will be maintenance involved, but uh, I'm confident that if designed correctly, the maintenance costs will be much, much, much less than the maintenance costs of a legacy city with all of that infrastructure associated with it, right? I mean, we don't have to build roads. You don't necessarily have to... Um, you know, uh, pay for all the land to deal with flooding, right? Who's going to build the roads? You don't even have to deal with that question, do you? Exactly. Who's going to build the canals? (laughs) You don't build the canals, right? You build the things that go next to the canals. Uh, Something else I just thought of, and it'd be interesting, it's an interesting thought experiment. If If you were offered a bunch of money to see one of these projects, you know, into existence on the proviso that you were an offshore casino, mm-hmm. say, or something. Would, it, would, is that a viable business model, do you think? Uh, absolutely. I don't see why not. I mean... Because that's the kind of thing that happens in places like that. You know, yeah. I mean, gambling law here is... you Because know, it's one of those, ga- those laws that most people disagree... Well, I don't know who disagree. I disagree with it. Why would you law, make a law against gambling? It's up to you to decide that. But people definitely still want to gamble. It's right. huge. Right. So they always find a way. Yeah. They always build something or create a zone or do this or whatever. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think the long-term vision is Atlas Island will be, you know, an archipelago, an archipelago of, uh, of islands, platforms, so to speak. And each could have its own, you know, little slant. You know, one of them may be targeted at uh, more conservative people who just want, you know, a quiet place to dock their boat, you know, some stores, some restaurants, nothing, nothing uh, extravagant. Another one could be very touristy, you know, that targets cruise ships and other boaters who are not necessarily there permanently, but, uh, you know, come around every once in a while and, and want to do those touristy things. You could have another one related to potentially gambling, another one for medical tourism. And each of these platforms would be operated privately separately and each could choose their own rules. And, you know, they're not necessarily formally associated, but when you have them all in the roughly same vicinity, that gives everyone there the ability to choose between them and, you know, take the best from each that they want and, uh, you know, uh, but also um, not be tied down to one. So, for example, you may want to gamble, but you don't want to live in a gambling city. So you could take your boat, you know, sail um, and dock at that gambling uh, station, do some gambling for a day or two, and then go back with your family and, and stay at your quiet place where there's no gambling, there's no bars, you know, however you want to live your life. It's like flying to Vegas for the weekend. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly the same thing. Um, wow. 
it's funny. I keep because I've never spoken about this whole subject. I keep remembering things from my past. This is a bizarre one, and I, I've got no way of tracking down where the where all this stuff went. But years ago, years and years ago, when I was quite young, I used to run a, a, a kind of like a mobile library of weird and wonderful books. And I did it for quite a while, and people got to know what I was doing. And often they would tip me off about really interesting book collections that were being, you know, um, that were going free, and you, I could go and collect them. And once some, someone said, oh, got, this guy's died, and he's left all his research behind. And it's really fascinating stuff. And we went there, and there were piles and piles of plans of floating cities and stuff. <laughs> and I've absolutely no idea what I did with it all. <laughs> But because at the time I remember thinking, this sounds amazing. I got there and I started looking through it all and I was thinking, nah, this is too far out there. This isn't going to happen. This is, this, I thought I was going to discover some sort of missing texts of, of like your future living or whatever. But I don't know where it is. But talking to you now, I can really envisage how realistic this is as an idea. And I think, you know, even two hours ago, I, I, I thought this is just one of those ideas that's just looks good on paper and very uh, part of the attraction to it is is it's because it's new because it is a bit like weird and wonderful but it's not at all is it no it's very practical in fact it's yeah. very it's very normal in fact it's just that now we can do it and and you know 50 years ago it was less likely we could do it you know? well and you know on top of that like you know I, i'm coming at this from the atlas island and capitalist point of view of building this in the middle of the ocean but there's actually a lot of talk now whether you believe in you know anthropological global warming or not, sea levels have been rising. So there's a lot of countries and cities that are worried about the sea level rise and are, and are investing a lot of money into research and development for floating extensions of their cities. I mean, the Netherlands already does this, but the technology to build floating cities is being developed regardless of seasteading. I'm just saying, let's take that technology and let's use flags of convenience and let's run platforms as private cities. I'm not trying to reinvent anything here. I'm just trying to bring together existing ideas and use them to in a you know a reasonable, a legal, and a practical manner achieve freedom as quickly as possible. One thing about the free cities movement, which is the most exciting for me, is that we are now getting examples, livable examples. And every day there's a new example, there's a new challenge, there's a new result, and there's a new understanding of how you move forward. Um, and a lot of that, really, when I look at it, is in the legality of all this. But this is the mo This is one of the main tools that people creating these kind of communities have to establish. Mm -hmm. So, what have you got any examples apart from things like, um, you know, Thailand and, and the sea land? And the, are there any examples of where the legality has been tested? And, and you've got a result that makes you think, right, that's a good route. Or, of seasteading? Yes. Or, of, of, yeah, I mean, or Atlas Island. Same thing. I mean, you call it seasteading. It's the same as seasteading, right? Yeah, I mean, seasteading is a, a broader movement that includes a huge number of projects that, you know, range from perhaps people who want to have like a communist society that's focused on environmental restoration to myself. So seasteading is just the concept of living on the ocean permanently. And Atlas Island is applying seasteading to anarcho-capitalism and combining it with the concept of free cities. So in terms of precedence, I mean, I think the one we talked about earlier is, is probably the best one. I mean, you have cruise ships with 5,000 people going around on the ocean, taking advantage of the legality. So I don't think anyone would question the legality of our concept for seasteading. There's no doubt that you can take a vessel and flag it in whatever country you want, as long as they agree to it, and then go anywhere in the world. And when you're international waters, you follow the laws of the country in which you're flagged. And there's also no doubt 
that already countries are competing for that flagging money. You have the Bahamas, Panama, Malta, Liberia. All of these countries are competing for the business from the cruise ships. And if we get, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people living on vessels that all want to buy flags of convenience, it essentially flips the script, so to speak. Instead of us having to pander to governments, governments will have to start pandering to us because do you want this million dollars or $5 million or $10 million a year of registration fees? Okay, fantastic. Bahamas, you already offer us zero taxes. Uh, you know, um, Liberia is offering that as well and lower regulation. So can you compete? Can you give us more freedom? Can you give us more you know, more uh, independence, more autonomy. And you're essentially causing the governments to bid for your business rather than demanding that you pay them taxes. And while, you know, some people in the seasteading movement are very fixated on the idea of declaring themselves independent and making up their own flag and calling themselves a country and having a government, I'd be perfectly happy if I had 20 governments and each year they came to me and they competed more and more for my business and gave me better and better deals. Because I really don't care, you know, uh, from a symbolic perspective, what flag flies on my boat. What I care about is, you know, escaping the, the, the tyranny of governments and achieving freedom. And if you can do that by paying flagging fees, which re- really are fees for services, they're not taxes, then that's fine with me. I don't mind paying $500 or $1,000 a year for the governance and the, the legal cover and the sovereignty that that provides. I, I don't really care about that. I don't view it as a tax because it's voluntary, because I can choose at any time to change to another country's flag if I want. And actually, it's it's <clears throat> putting you very far down the ungovernable spectrum. Exactly. Even if the shit hit, did hit the fan in that country, who's going to come out and exactly. do anything to you? Like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, now it, it, exactly. So, I mean, if I was flagged in, in the United States, if I was an American citizen and I was, you know, sailing a boat with an American flag, I'd probably be a little worried because uh, the American government has the ability to do that. But uh, if I'm paying Liberia, you know, $500 a year to fly their flag and other countries recognize it, I'm not too worried that Liberia is going to come get me in the, you know, in the Caribbean and uh, say that I, you know, I, I didn't... Uh, follow their exact regulation on, uh, you know, how my internet connection should be secured. Like, it's not going to happen, right? So you really want to find those small countries. And the beauty is that the countries that are most um, eager to earn your business are usually the ones that are least capable of enforcing their laws and least concerned about that. I mean, I don't think Liberia or the Bahamas, I mean, the Bahamas to some degree, but as long as you maintain decorum and you don't, you know, do anything that's obviously criminal, I don't think the Bahamas really cares too much if you're running, you know, uh, a, a fintech company, you know, based on cryptocurrency off of your boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? The, if you go and kill people, they're going to care. But I don't think anyone in our community wants to do that, right? We all re- respect the, the non-aggression principle, and we just want to live a free life without hurting anyone else. Um, I've just realized as well, another section, subsection of society that already does, does this, because I know people that work on these boats are billionaires. Mm-hmm. Billionaires always already yeah, do this. Absolutely. They, they travel around the world. There are, there's a circuit. There's even a circuit. Yeah. I have a <laughs> former friend who was very embedded in that world. Yeah. And I've heard some very interesting stories and it, about, you know, very large boats belonging to wealthy people and just living on them and moving to yeah. Europe, to the Baha- to St. Lucia, to St. Yep. Kitts, yep. then doing this and that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Mediterranean in the summer and the Caribbean in the winter is a nice little uh, circuit that a lot of people can do. And, you know, aside from Atlas Island, like I said, I'm personally working to design a catamaran that uh, 
the goal, and I guess you'll hear more about this tomorrow at my talk, but the goal is to make a catamaran that is as independent as possible, but is also still affordable for the average person. So I want it to be completely self-sufficient from an electricity perspective, be able to make its own water, manage its own sewage, have, you know, satellite internet connectivity. And our goal is to make this a catamaran that can, you know, house a family of four to six people and cost probably in the $500,000 range. So, I mean, I know it's not cheap, but if you're looking at a house in most cities in Europe or North America, that's kind of the price range you're looking at. So our goal is that any middle income family who can afford a house and, and wants to take on this lifestyle should hopefully be able to sell that house and buy a catamaran and join our movement. Do you ever wonder about a concerted effort of powerful nations outlawing a movement like this? Of course. I mean, that's that's always um, you know a concern, and particularly recently with the uh, the corporate minimum tax, it's you know it's something you think about. What's that? So there was a push recently um, by a lot of the developed countries to have some of these smaller countries um, remove their their zero tax rate and start oh, establishing yeah, yeah. a minimum I do tax. Know about that. That's right. So yeah, I mean, it's always Which, yeah, it's very unfair on them. That, yeah, that's one of their most powerful tools to attract you to come to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's always a concern, um, but I guess the question. And this is where, again, I think Atlas Island has an advantage over the traditional um, free city approach of building on land is that, you know, Prospera, for example, you go to Honduras, you get this great deal with the government, and then who knows what's going to happen with that government. All it takes is that one government changing its position to significantly put your project in jeopardy potentially. Whereas with us, if I have a catamaran and I go to Honduras and I get a great flag from them, five years from now they say, yeah, actually, we don't like this anymore. We're going to crack down on you. I go to another country. So the question isn't whether some countries will clamp down. The question is, what is the possibility or probability that every single country in the world clamps down and no one is willing to offer a flag to our vassals? And I think the, the, the possibility of every single country clamping down is quite low, especially when you have places like, you know, Dubai and Monaco that are already zero-tax jurisdictions, the Bahamas. Hold a minute. How does... Dubai give you a flag if they've got no sea borders. You don't have to have sea borders to issue a flag. You just have to be a sovereign country. Is that right? Yeah. And, and as long as you're outside the 12 miles, right. Yes. And on top of that, actually, this is the part I hadn't mentioned before. This is actually perhaps even more interesting. When you look at a lot of these smaller countries, they don't actually give you the flag themselves. What these countries do is they find a company to run their flagging registry. And this company pays the country a certain fee. And in exchange, it's the company that sells the flags. So you're not even talking with the governments of these countries. You're talking with private companies that are for-profit that have essentially licensed the flag of this country and then can sub-license it to you. But take a cruise liner, for example. Mm -hmm. If it's a Norwegian cruise liner, mm -hmm. presumably they got a Norwegian flag, right? Usually not, no. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Usually they, they because if they had a Norwegian flag, they would have to pay everyone Norwegian wages, follow Norwegian labor codes, and uh, they wouldn't want to do that. Probably so it's already the free cities model. One hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I was on a cruise from the Royal Caribbean, and you know, I went um, on a cruise to Mexico. We left from Florida. The boat was built actually in Scandinavia somewhere. It was flagged in the Bahamas. Most of the crew was from the Philippines, and you know, they're already taking advantage of this. And and some people will say they're taking advantage of people from lower income countries, but actually the people on the cruise are so happy to be working there because they're making far more than they would make in their home country. So really everyone's benefiting from this. It already exists and, and no one questions it because, you know, well, I don't think they know it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I'm pretty embedded in this movement and I didn't realize that 
I mean, what you're describing is already, it's flag, it's proper flag theory. Yeah, it's exactly. It's actual real flag theory that really works. You, and know? <laughs> you know how embedded this is into the cruise ship industry? If you look at cruise ships, they actually make a point. So if you try to take a cruise down the West Coast of the United States, there will always be one stop in Mexico. And the reason for that is that if a, a cruise ship stays in one country for its entire cruise, it has to follow the laws of that country. Whereas if it goes to two, it can follow its flagging laws. So cruise itineraries are particularly designed around this concept to make it work. Do you think it's uh, a lo- something that might get clamped down upon? Is it being over- is it being overlooked now, or is it is it does it make sense even f- to, for the government to look at that and go, oh, that's fair enough? You know? So, you know, fair enough. I um, I look at it this way. I don't know how feasible it is to be clamped down on because this is not a loophole for the cruise ship industry. This is the foundation of maritime law. And if you start changing these foundations, not only will it affect the cruise industry, it'll ship, affect the shipping industry and the private boat industry. And, you know, I, I forget where I heard it. I actually heard it today on a podcast, um, and they were talking about this, that the maritime law is established, and it's very, very difficult to change to the point where some of the laws are the same text they've been for the last over 2,000 years. Because to change maritime law, it's not that the United States can just unilaterally change the law. I mean, they could withdraw from the treaties, but... I think that'd be very unlikely. To change the law, you have to get the unanimous consent of all the countries who've agreed to these treaties. So I think it's a, a very difficult process to make that happen. And if you have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 countries that are benefiting from this flag theory and selling their flags and making a lot of money, those countries are going to be very hesitant to allow that to change. So I think you've got vested interests that, uh, that prevent that from happening and a lot of technical and legal reasons why it likely won't change. Are there projects other projects that are planning this on a cruise ship so someone tried it already i mean the same people that did the uh the the, the first floating um house in thailand they actually at one point bought a cruise ship um and they ran into a little bit of trouble with that um, my understanding is that they essentially want to take this cruise ship and dock it in one spot and have people live on it as a, a floating city i think there's a couple problems with that one Cruise ships are great for vacation, but they're really not amenable to live on. Mm. You don't want to live in a cruise ship room 24-7, 365, some, even if you can get... Some people might. Yeah. I don't even want to spend one night in one, but like some people love cruises. I mean, yeah. they absolutely love cruises, don't Right, they? but they love cruises because when you're on a cruise, you have a whole staff of people preparing meals, doing your laundry. Imagine preparing meals, doing your laundry, and, you know, working out of a cruise ship room, right? It's, it gets pretty cramped. So that was one issue. It was kind of difficult. The second issue was um, the cost structure of a cruise ship. And this is where I like our idea better is let's say you can get a cruise ship for $10 million and it has, you know, um, let's say 1,000 or 500 rooms on it. You're talking, if my mental math is correct, $20,000 per room that that costs, which, you know, on the surface um, sounds reasonable. But then the question becomes, okay, now when you're talking about $2 million a year in maintenance on that ship, you know, who's responsible for that? And what happens if half the people decide not to pay their maintenance fee or something goes wrong and now you've lost your investment? So you're essentially buying into a massive condominium with a lot of incentive for freeloading and a lot more maintenance problems. So I think that's one of the technical problems with doing this on a cruise ship. And then from a legal perspective, the problem was that, uh, you know, to flag a vessel, it needs to be classified by a society and to have insurance and insurance companies are usually pretty conservative and they were very hesitant to insure a cruise ship 
that was no longer cruising um, for a number of reasons, one of which is, you know, how do we ensure the integrity of this if it's not being regularly inspected? And, you know, how do we know that it's going to be safe to stay in one spot rather than moving to avoid the storm? So that was some of the issues that came up with converting a cruise ship to, an, uh, you know, a single location. But on that note, there actually, I just thought of this, I remember this, there actually are already essentially sea-setting cruise ships. One of them is called The World, and it's a cruise ship, but instead of having small little rooms, you actually buy condos on it. And there's a couple hundred people who live on this, and they spend their lives sailing the world, and the residents vote on their itinerary that they follow around this. Uh, is that under the umbrella of seasteading, or is that just no, a... It's, because thinking about it, what you, as you were speaking, I'm thinking, if this was a viable business model, I think cruise ship liners would have done it already. There, there are. But yeah, exactly. Because, you know, or timeshares, for example, yep. on rooms, which they probably do do. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah. so there's a couple of them already out there, and there's more coming out that are, that are doing this. They don't call themselves seasteads. I think they more so, um, a lot of the people on those vessels, from my understanding, are more wealthy, retired people who just want to travel the world. So I think, I guess what differentiates us is the fact that we view this not just as a cool retirement opportunity, but as actually a way to build a community that is permanent and growing. Well, there's more of an ideological Mm -hmm. stance to it as well. Yeah. I think your average gray-haired couple with a lot of money, they want freedom in inverted commas, but they don't want like freedom as in the, the freedom we're talking about yeah they just want to sit there have the food served to them and travel and get off at cancun and then get off at yeah wherever you know yeah um okay last question then timelines like have you got <laughs> a, a, any prediction about when you think there might be a working prototype let's give me two dates one would be the one in the harbor somewhere and the other would be a full flown a full blown you know well, it would look amazing. It would make the news, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be a phenomenal, you know. St- it would be quite an easy thing to, I think, to 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 launch when it launched. And I don't mean launch into the sea. I mean to get business to, to come in the beginning. You may have trouble keeping them. I don't know, but certainly it would be such a spectacle. I think people would want to yeah. go there. You know. Yeah. Um, this is probably the most difficult question to answer. I mean, I think realistically. We're at least 10 years out from building any floating platform, even in, you know, a harbor. Um, And I think what we can probably do is look to Prospera and see how it develops and how long it takes to do that on land and, you know, extrapolate that it will take at least that long, if not longer, to do the same thing with floating infrastructure just because the technology still needs to be refined. So I would hope within, you know, 10 to 20 years, we see a platform floating, you know, in a protected harbor. And then after that, maybe another 10 years to, to get something out in the ocean. I don't know that it'll necessarily be this huge structure initially. Um, I would hope within 50 years we see a bunch of these massive floating domes that are, you know, attracting visitors and views from around the world. Well, I mean, if people, which I think your average person expects Elon Musk to be in on Mars at some point, don't yeah. they? That's very commonly accepted now. I think it'd be much easier to Absolutely. To, to live at sea. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, like, you know, if we're talking about creating colonies in outer space, th- there's a huge cost yep. compared to creating a really quite spectacularly amazing colony on the sea. Yeah. And, you know, from our Atlas Island perspective, I think the bigger thing is to first get a vessel that is, you know, attractive to people to live on. Because most of the catamarans and boats that you see right now, while they do have the ability to live aboard, are primarily designed for the sailing itself, right? That is the goal is to move around. What I want to do is design something that is primarily designed to live aboard, 
but then can also sail. So what you want essentially is a movable floating house rather than a boat that you can live on. And I know it sounds like semantics, but there is really a difference and it's a question of comfort because most people are not going to want to give up a huge amount of comfort. So you're going to want a properly sized bed, a properly sized living room. You're going to want comfortable accommodations. So I see that happening very soon. In fact, like I said, I'm in the process of designing that. I hope, I mean, we've got a rough design now. I hope within a year we can have all the engineering done and start taking pre-orders and building these. And then, you know, if some other companies compete and have a, you know, a competing design with the same concept, fantastic. I want competition. I want more people getting into this. I think once you see 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people around the world living on these vessels permanently, that's when there will then be that market to drive the platform development. Have you got a real-life prototype of that, or is it all on paper? It's all you, on the computer right now. And do you not make prototypes anymore? Do you just Will you just go straight to, to building it? Um, I mean, we've already run the, the virtual prototype through a wave simulation. Um, so, I mean, from an engineering perspective, there's not a huge amount of value anymore to building physical prototypes. I mean, we may do it just for the sake of doing it and put it in a wave tank, but I think you can get much more accurate and useful information out of a digital prototype than you can out of a, a physical one. That being said, you know, whenever you build something, the first one we build and sell is, of course, going to be a prototype, and the design will be refined over time. So um, whoever's... One last, last question. Yeah. If, um, if the world changed tomorrow and you know the land living wasn't as oppressive or didn't appear as oppressive let's say somehow the free cities movement morphed into just a universal movement of freedom would you still go and live at sea it depends what you mean by that would i necessarily would you still want to build this and go and live and 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 you know if if land was was good enough mm mm-hmm. Would you still want to go and do this at the sea? Because obviously I'm, I'm wondering how much of this is the desire for autonomy and freedom and how much of it is, you know, I think living on the sea is going to be a, a really cool existence. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a cool factor to the sea. Realistically, I don't think that living in the middle of the ocean is, um, you know, the, the goal for the sake of being the goal. So if you told me that, you know, all of a sudden Europe and America were divided up into... 2,000, um, you know, city-states that each were independent and operated as a private city. What I would say is I would still pursue this, but I think we would probably stop at stage four for now, have the technology be floating nearby the city, have access to that network, and then, you know, in the contingency that things go badly, you're you able to move away. But if there's, you know, conducive nations and, um, you know, uh, uh, favorable environments, I think that we would float closer to shore rather than being out in the middle of nowhere. Because it still could be, and it's still an interesting business idea, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. You could almost certainly make money out of it as a business. It doesn't have to be an ideological endeavor, right? Well, uh, (laughs) I mean, I know it is for you, but I'm I'm just thinking, you know. It depends what you mean. In that scenario, if, for example, you, uh, uh, because I know I've heard a lot of free city folks saying that the ideal free city is on the coast, because yeah. you need a a, play, a way in and out, which isn't across land. So it could easily be part of the weaponry. Exactly. So, word, you know. so I, I view Atlas Island to some degree in you know separate parts. The community building itself, I don't see that as being making money. I think that is you know a charity, a nonprofit. 
building the catamaran, you know, the solar electric catamaran. I've talked about that. It's certainly going to be a for-profit business. I want to make it open source, but, you know, run it similar to Arduino or other open source projects where we sell hardware at a profit. And then building and operating the platforms, that will certainly be a profitable business too. So, yeah, I mean, Atlas Island as a community won't necessarily be for-profit, but the design and building and operation of platforms certainly should be for-profit. And, you know, Prospera or any other free city that is open to it, we would love to have floating platforms anchored right offshore, even connected to the shore to number one, um, prove our idea, but number two, uh, provide additional real estate for these places. They may be landlocked, right? It may be that these free cities build up as much as they can in the area they have and they want to expand and we can provide that opportunity to expand. Having been to Prospera myself, I could easily envisage an offshore platform being used for recreation. Yes, absolutely. it's already a very coastal place that Diving is a huge part of going to that island and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah so I, I was actually there in um, July and I uh, was scoping it. We, we did a, we canoed all along the coast of Prospera and I kind of scoped out where we could possibly put marinas or floating platforms there. And, uh, you know, it's certainly something that's in discussion and consideration. I take it at Prospera, you get the reef and then you get a bit, quite a drop off after yeah. the reef. Do you? Yeah. And then that's where you position yourself, right? In open. Well, it depends on what you want to do, right? I mean, right now I wasn't looking necessarily at putting floating platforms there. What I was looking at was, can we build our marina in Prospera and that be our stage two where people from North America go there and, and anchor their boats at the marina there. And it serves twofold. One, you know, it's a location for Atlas Island members to community, to congregate. And two, it's a marina for Prospera that allows other people to come visit and perhaps even, you know, supplies and uh, larger ships to come and dock and uh, help avoid that uh, that issue they're having right now with the border by establishing their own port. Um, well, look, Mason, that's a fascinating conversation. I've actually, you have convinced me. I came in thinking it was a really a, a funny idea, a cool idea, let's say. Um but I get it now. I get it. It's that's very much feasible. Um, it's just a question of building it and finding the community. And I still don't think I would, Fair uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a I'm a boots feet on the ground type of person. Um, and I've never liked sailing. Actually, I have, <laughs> I have done a bit of sailing around the Med and down to Morocco and stuff. And I, I. I, it's one of those things that in my mind seems like it's going to be amazing, but in reality, it's not something I enjoy. However, so, I've never been on a catamaran. Yeah, let, so. me, let, me, let me sell you on this, okay? You have a boat that is stable in the waves. You don't have to be in the middle of the ocean. The way I'm designing this catamaran is also designed for inland waters. So perhaps instead of flying here, you take your catamaran, you sail along the coast, and you can actually come up this river and dock in Prague, and you can spend a month living in Prague. Then you sail to Frankfurt, you spend a month living there most major European cities are on a waterway that will be accessible by our catamaran. So you could actually spend your life living in a city, but instead of buying or renting apartments, you move your apartment between those cities and, and you know, live on the river system. Well, that already happens, obviously. Barges. Yeah. I, 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 but yeah, and people from the UK take barges over to um, yeah. uh, Amsterdam. Right. Which the thought of taking a barge out on the sea like that fills me with fear, but... Apparently, it's not such a big deal. And also, like I said, you don't want to go on the sea, fine. Okay, you have it in the UK, you spend some time there, you want to come to Europe, but you don't want to cross the channel. You hire someone, pay him $500, and he'll sail across for you in a couple of days. You fly over, you meet him there, and now you've got your house on the other side, right? I mean, I don't know if I'd ever necessarily want to do an ocean crossing, so maybe I hire someone. Uh, a couple of weeks, they bring it across the Atlantic for me, and it, it ends up where I want it, right? I mean, it's you don't have to be the one to sail it everywhere yourself. 
Our goal at Atlas Island is not to make people love sailing. It's to make living on the water enjoyable and practical for people who don't love sailing but loves the idea of freedom and liberty. That's me, basically. Well, thanks, Mason. I hope to give it a shot in my lifetime. It'd be lovely to at least try it out. Um, I'm not sure I'll ever have a spare 500000 to buy a catamaran. That'll get spent on something else, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm... but um, I would imagine that in the future, if this becomes a reality, um, Atlas Island tourism will be a huge part of your business model. And I'll certainly do that. No question about that. Fantastic. It'd be great to have you there and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch moving forward. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.